if I was to write my own autobiography, I would call it something like hiding in plain sight, because it really was about this hiding, wanting to be expressed, wanting to be out there in the world and make a difference, but being terrified of being seen by people. Really, that was the truth of it for me. And it's taken years, but I'm finally coming out from behind the curtain, so to speak, owning my own voice, Mm -hmm. having my own platform, writing my own books and getting my own message out there. This is Show Your Business Who's Boss. Listen in on behind-the-scenes, unfiltered conversations with my favorite business owner friends who take charge and make their businesses work for them. Don't just be your own boss. Show your business who's boss. I'm Pia Silva. Today, I'm speaking with storyteller, publisher, writer, and badass business owner, Max Miller. Max has ghostwritten bestsellers for six and seven figure earners, and over 15 years, he has refined his signature magnetic messaging method to help experts and experienced leaders create successful enterprises and movements by leveraging books, media, and other authority platforms. I met Max years ago when we were both involved in a program together that was about using live events and speaking to promote your message. And we just connected at those events on so many levels that we ended up staying in touch. And every time we get together, we go all over the place um, on deep topics that mean something to us. He is an avid reader and a curious person. And of course, I like to collect those people in my world. So I'm excited to share Max with you. Today, we chat about all kinds of things, um, including Max's past as a ventriloquist, as an Imagineer at Disney, as a gymnast, a dancer, an actor, and how all of those experiences clearly led him directly to where he is today, right now, doing what he's doing. One of the biggest and most important lessons that we've both learned about speaking from the stage and what to do when you are staring down an audience who's not given you any love, the difference between brain dumping and brainstorming, and the three steps Max says all writers need to take to write a brilliant book, and so much more. So buckle up. Here we go. Hi. How are you? Ah, I'm great. It's so nice to see you. Good to see you too. I keep seeing you are you're like a model right now for me. I can't believe your emails and stuff. You're really making me uh, think about how I've got to like raise my my uh, brand level here in terms just in terms of how you communicate and how just consistent and oh, creative and innovative and vital your your communication is it's amazing oh my gosh thank you so much the the secret is that i i grinded for a while and i created a lot of stuff and then i have a system of like reusing it and so i do create new things but i don't have to create them nearly as often because i have such a stable of work and i bet you do too i'm actually just you know what i'm really in the process right now talk about eating your own dog food you know i teach Uh would-be authors to create a repository you know of stories quotes you know metaphors um you know like sound bites because you know as an author your books don't sell themselves you got to be out there promoting them. You're always selling a book. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then the book will do a good job of promoting the next step. But Mm -hmm. 
I've been going to put a book out for years. I have now I have three of them done. <laughs> and so now that I'm in that position um, and I'm putting out the first one in the spring. Oh, so, congratulations on the yeah. launch. Tell me what the three books are. What's the first book? The, because well, we talked about a book years ago. Yeah, when we yeah. did a brand shrink. It's called the, the brand is called a 30 day breakthrough. Mm. And it's based on the principle that the mindset is not the first thing except the commitment to dive in. Other than that, the mindset is usually something that gets developed along the way, right? So it's the idea that we don't shape our thinking first and then our behavior. It's really the other way around. You know, taking the actions will shape your mindset. And another good quote of that is um, Emerson. You know, he said, do the thing and you'll have the power, right? And so I'm, I'm really building a brand based on that idea. It's specific incremental actions that will get them more and more out of their comfort zone and get them to try things on. Basically, each chapter is just sharing some challenge and a little story that either is encouraging or challenging, you know, some, some way supplements it. And so they're very short chapters. And the beauty of it is, I, I want to build a platform to help other pe- other would-be thought leaders build a platform. Mm. In other words, I want to create a sort of a master platform that's that's easy. People, you know, when they go to see you, when you did it, when you went to write a book, you're like, oh my God, where do I start, right? Mm-hmm. And I just want to make it so much simpler for them to um, to do the basic groundwork for that first book. So mine is called shine a 30-day breakthrough in self-expression so the second book and i think you'll really appreciate the second book is called the self-help trap (laughs) and it's it's really the thesis behind everything that i just said yeah it's it's really yeah exactly it's really just saying look the only way to really learn something is to get out there and take action yeah. You, you don't really learn by taking classes and, you know, all of this stuff unless unless it's implementation. Mm-hmm. Right. So stop learning. Stop trying to fix yourself and getting better and everything. You're never going to be, you know, good enough to start. But right. because you already are just start and you'll learn everything you need to learn along the way. So that's the gist of it. And it, you know, it is, it. it is a little intentionally provocative saying, sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> saying right. self-help trap, the, the trap being that idea that I'm almost there. I just got to learn this one more thing before I do, before I pursue my dream. Well, you know? it, it's only a trap if you let the learning get in the way of the doing like there are plenty of people who've been doing self-help for 30 years i don't they're not necessarily in a trap they're only in a trap if they're if they're not getting any better doing anything they just like to read about it and that feels good enough and then they (laughs) put it away and go watch netflix the general feeling of my own um company is really about take action so my first book and my series is all about taking action my second book is really sort of saying, now that I've done this, let me tell you my point of view on this mm-hmm. whole subject matter, which is, you know, the real movers and shakers in, in life are always the action takers. Mm-hmm. And some win, some lose, but, you know, you, you'll you never know unless you get out there. And then the last one is really much more of a kind of a reflective thing about the whole nature of 
finding meaning out of your doing, you know, and it's my take on um, the hero's journey and, and talking about why I, I think that each of us are really living maybe more than one in a lifetime, you know, mm. hero's journey. At the same time, my my kind of presenting a philosophy of life that it really, even though I say, you know, it's about the action, it really is at the end of the day, really ultimately about two things. You know, I, I, I have um, my mother's in nursing care right now and, you know, been through end of life with my father and my stepfather, you know, in the last few years. And, you know, the one thing I can see is that not much matters at the end of life to us, except the state of our relationships and some sense of, did I do what I'm here to do? Did I accomplish? Did I learn? Did I fulfill on what my life was really about? And that's, so I think, you know, why not take that to heart now and live from those and cherish our relationships, nurture our relationships and live on purpose, live intentionally. Not not saying that we don't want to play and have fun and enjoy. Of course, that's all part of the game, you know, but but mm-hmm. those two things, I think, are what's really important. So I'm really trying to create a platform to kind of preach that message. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful message. I, I actually find that that whole idea has been somewhat crushing to me at many parts mm-hmm. in my life because it makes me feel a little it, it's like it can create anxiety yeah. like that's I mean that's why I'm so obsessed with time because I'm so aware of how limited it is and if you're super aware of how limited it is then mm-hmm. anything that encroaches on your time is incredibly <laughs> frustrating and annoying so I'm like I'll never get that minute back <laughs> you know yeah. um, but but trying to trying to hold on to it without with letting go of the anxiety is I don't know. It, it, I feel like I I would associate that with people who are being monks or or trying to you know the purpose of meditation. Like these are actions that we're doing to try to just continually remember that because it's so easy to get caught up in the day to day. I mean, our brains almost don't want to naturally let us just be aware of that all the time. No, definitely not. Our brains are addicted to problem solving. Yes. You know, so they're always looking for a problem to solve. <laughs> and that sometimes looks like bad news, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Create problems so you can solve them. You know, I performed at Renaissance festivals back in my college days. So so I was on this thing called a Jacob's Ladder, which is, it's hard to describe, but it's a two ends of it are a swivel with a rope ladder in between on an angle, right? And a bale of hay underneath it. And the object is to climb up this thing without spinning over and falling on your ass in the hay, right? And the thing about it is the balance of it is exactly the opposite of everything you've learned in life. Uh So it's this really challenging thing. So when we, we had to learn this and I spent a whole weekend learning it and just beating my knees and elbows and my poor butt, you know, for all the times Uh that I landed on it. Finally, I got it. And I had this aha moment. And I realized that balance is really nothing more than a finely tuned awareness of falling. You know, you lose your balance, right? But you lost it. When you're falling, you've lost it. It's the being tuned into what it feels like when you're about to lose it that has you respond and and Uh. be able to to deal with it. Now, apply that to everything else in your life. You know, you hear a lot about people 
um, in this crazy time that we're living in, not being able to maintain focus. What is focus? It's really a finely tuned awareness of distractions, right? And the same thing. So this is mindfulness to me. This, this is like noticing what is yanking us out of the game at any given moment, you know? So if I want to, if I, you know, I used to have a temper as a kid, I just had a terrible temper, grew up, you know, I had a reputation when I was an, you know, an Imagineer of still having, you know, a short fuse sometimes. And mastering that was really just the same thing. It was a matter of being able to tune in instead of resisting and denying, but mm -hmm. really tap in and pay attention to the feeling of the anger arising mm. so that I had some choice in the matter. Yeah. Right. Right. And so this, this, this has really been amazing to me to, to bring the same idea that, that whatever you're aspiring to, whatever way of being you're aspiring to, the clue towards being that way is in the not being that way. You got to be willing to embrace and pay attention to. You have to replace it with something yeah. else. And that's, yeah. you're, yeah. you know, all of this is reminding me, did you ever read Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself? I don't know if you ever heard of that book, um, Espinoza or something. He's a, yeah, it's a great book. Um, but uh, the concepts that you're talking about, he, he basically is saying at any moment, you can be a completely different person. You right. can make completely different choices. Um, yes. And we don't really feel like that. We feel like, oh, no, this is who I am and this is what yeah. I do. But of course, you have complete freedom over how you react. And so when you're talking about this idea of, you know, um, let's say you're, you're quick to anger or something and being able to notice those triggers. And it's it's each time that you notice it and then to make a different decision, you are breaking one synapse and like solidifying the other one. And it's not going to happen overnight you're gonna have to do it over and over and over again but eventually that's who you quote are because yeah. that's just the habit of who you are breaking the habit of being yourself i just love that concept because that's what we really are we're just a bunch of habits and then we identify with it we were like if we have an emotional right. pattern we go that's me that's just me yeah right but the to your and point protective. and to his point that's not necessarily you you just and that's what you say. Yeah. You know, right. You've just gotten really used to saying that and it's default. And, and really, it applies to anything that we choose to put our attention on in life, you know, and like, well, you know, I was kind of traumatized at a young age about being out in front of people. And really? you saw you saw one of them, you know, a few years ago, you saw me get on stage and I was terrified. I was really? absolutely terrified getting up on stage. I, I had this experience when I was in like second grade of being mocked by the kids because I had I had to give a report standing up in front of them and I kind of stammered and stuttered and um, and they teased me about it and I was so ashamed and so embarrassed and so forth. And then I pleaded with my teacher never to put me up in front of the room again. And it's interesting because that same year, a little later that year, I started playing with ventriloquism, right? I, I got a little dummy. Now, how these things work, it's just fascinating, but I got really, really good at the ventriloquism. And when you think about it, a kid who's afraid of being 
seen or laughed at and you put all your attention over here on a dummy you know and i got really good at it in fact by the time i was nine i was performing for like thousands of people you know as a ventriloquist professionally right and my stepdad knew the guys who wrote the who's on first routine uh-huh. <laughs> Back in the day? Yeah. They wrote me a routine that I used to do. Those guys, those comedy writers wrote my routine that I oh used to do God. with my dummy. Can you believe it? Yeah. So, but, you know, and, and it was really great and I had a good run at it. And then I oddly became an actor. Now, as an actor, you're never really out there as yourself. You're always out there as this character and so forth. And then I became really behind the scenes as an Imagineer. Right. And if I tell us what that is, not everyone knows. Oh, Imagineer is the people who design theme parks for Disney. That's Mm -hmm. that's Imagineering. I I worked for Disney and I designed theme parks for them. I was a show producer for them. And um, you're never on stage with that job. So I I was fine with it. But um, what I'm saying is my whole life story, when you look at that arc, is if I was to write my own autobiography, I would call it something like hiding in plain sight, because It really was about this um, hiding, wanting to be expressed, wanting to be out there in the world and make a difference, but being terrified of being seen by people. Really, that was the truth of it for me. And so I started getting out there. You know, you and I met in an organization that basically was known for helping people become speakers. And, And I got on their stage a few times. And, you know, I gradually got got past it to some extent. I, but here's the really amazing thing that, that ties it all together. I was about to walk on stage and I thought I was going to black out. And there was a one of those director's chairs on the stage I could see. And I thought, if I can just make it to that and hold on, I'll be okay, right? But I, in the moment, as I started to walk, I had this aha discovery. And that was this, that all of this is just Pavlovian, that it's just you know, I've been training my body to react this way to being in front of people. And so in that moment of going, oh, it it really doesn't mean anything except this is how I've trained my body to react to this situation. And it was amazing because the I still felt dizzy and, and all of that, but I grabbed onto that chair and, <laughs> and I said what I needed to say. And I felt so connected to the audience because I wasn't trying to put something on top of something else. I was really kind of letting go of whatever it was that I was adding to, you know, my palms are sweaty, my knees are shaking. It doesn't mean anything and it doesn't matter. And, you know, this is nothing. And I can still communicate. And I I don't know if I'm describing it uh, effectively, but I was actually really, really effective in front of that audience that time. Because I got, I just got so present to, this is just nerves and it doesn't matter. As Robert Frost said, the way out is the way through, mm. you know, or the way through is the way out. You, you know, you, you, you walk into it and, yeah. and yeah. Now when I think about, still when I think about being up on a stage, it makes me nervous, like in front of people, but I've done it a number of times now where the same thoughts came up, the, the re- physical reaction starts to show up. And I've been able to just go, okay, well, that's just what my body's doing right now. And it's not going to make a difference on my 
my delivery, you know? When you think about it, we all go through three phases when we decide we're going to go, you know, shout from the mountaintops. We're going to go communicate something to a new audience of some kind. And the first phase inevitably is our attention goes back on ourselves, you know, our bodies, our voice, our looks, and all of that. Attention, that's the first phase. It's really natural. It's just automatic for human beings. And once you take the actions, once you just hang in there, your attention starts to relax about that. You kind of get it all under control and your attention shifts to being all about, am I saying it right? Is this the right message? The, the message becomes the thing, you know, like getting the words in the right order and the sequencing and all of that. And then finally, you know, have had practice enough, if, if you have had practice enough, you get to this magical space where you cross the second threshold into a world where you just go right over there into the audience. Like your, your, your attention goes out there. It goes outward to being with people. Mm. And the amazing thing is, is that you, can, you can't be wrong if you're over there. What I mean is you can stutter. You can look funny. You can sound funny. None of it will matter if you stay over in the world of the, your audience. None of it matters. And you can mess your message up, too, and have to go back and, like, you can mess it up. But if you're totally with your audience and in their world and checking in eyeball to eyeball with them, magic happens. You know, all of your life experience comes to the surface, in that moment, and all it takes is actually being there in the uh, in the world of, of the, the listener. And I, I really feel like that is the magic. And again, the path is keep taking the actions. Mm -hmm. It's just keep moving through, right? That's the key. And you'll get to that magic place where you can really be powerful with people. I just did a five-day training uh, in, in the beginning of December, and I went live every day for five days for an hour. I, I was so invigorated about it because I had already connected with key members of the audience. I had already had them ans ask me questions. And, in, you know, so I was already there in their world. Mm. And it, it just was such a liberating experience for me because I had it all scripted out. I had my PowerPoint slides and everything, but I danced with it because I was actually just wanting it to really land for the people that were listening and participating with me. And it was really, uh, you know, like a turning point for my career and my, the way I think about myself as a leader and teacher and so forth, that's, you know, to have actually great. stepped through that. I, I love that. And actually, that's a great, that's a, a, tactic that I've used to make myself feel better whenever I've spoken in rooms, whenever before I've gotten up on stage when people are milling around, I go up to everybody I can and introduce myself and shake their hand because yeah. when, when people don't know each other, they're all kind of sitting nervously and they look 
they don't look warm and open. No. <laughs> and as a speaker, you yeah. you can take that personally because you can project like, do you not like what I'm saying? But really, they're just nervous and they don't know anyone. So if you go over to each person and and say, hi, how are you doing? I'm Pia. Oh, I'm about to speak. They'll just light right up like, <laughs> oh, and you said hello to me. I know. And, um, and I find I mean, I use it for myself <laughs> so that I feel a, more comfortable. It's a but, really, yeah. really good tactic. You point to something, you know, the how people respond visually, you learn this after being on a few stages, but yeah. how people respond visually is not a good clue no. as to what's going <laughs> on with them, yeah. you know, because people are in their heads, especially, yes. you know, you know, like you say something that really gets them thinking and they can look upset, <laughs> you know. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did this event, um, this like all day event, I think because of our red elephant training um, years ago. My dad came and sat in the aisle right there, you know, a couple <laughs> a couple rows back with this stink face on his face like the whole time. And then afterwards, he was like, Pia, that was amazing. I couldn't believe it. I was so You're impressed. Like, and I was like, Dad, what are you doing <laughs> sitting there? like staring me down like I'm insulting you. He's like, oh, no, I was just really thinking hard about what you were saying. <laughs> That's a good lesson. Yeah, That's it's a really a, good lesson. I mean, yeah. That is such a good point. Do not take any of it personally. Yeah, I took a course one time, um, and one of the they, they gave us little mantras, and one of the mantras was, they're not responding to me. You know, however people are being, it isn't about me, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. whatever it is. And that's so liberating. It's so freeing to realize, no, people are dealing with their own stuff. You know, they're just, they're in their own world. You know, that's, you know, oh, for communicators, yeah. for people who want to make a difference with other people, that is like probably the first, you know, big thing to get is that um, people don't start paying attention to you. You know, they don't, they, the encounter never starts with them going, I'm all ears, I'm all open. <laughs> you know, you've got to win them over and you've got to know that they start with all kinds of garbage, you know, mm -hmm. whatever just happened be, and it has nothing to do with you. Yeah. I always tell people that too about um, pitching work, you know. A lot of business owners get really emotionally tied up with clients that they're pitching, waiting for things back. They never got back to me. They must hate me. They must think that it was terrible, <laughs> like whatever it is. And, you know, and I mean, a long time ago, I finally got over that and kind of got over the hump and said, I'm sure because I, I got after a, lo a long enough time, you do end up hearing back from those people at some point, some of them. Sure. And it's always like, oh, I ended up getting divorced or, you know, like my basement yeah. literally flooded. So um, yeah. I had to spend all of my money on that. And and you don't you don't hear from the other 90 percent of the people where their basement <laughs> floods and they don't tell you that their basement right. <laughs> flooded. But that's, you know, most of the time there's something like that. People yeah. are not just snubbing you. Um, yeah. They're just in their own world because life has got yeah. a lot of stuff going on. It's a lesson that I think the more I can completely embrace it, the more joyful life is for me. I've been accused of being hypersensitive in an earlier time in life. Mm -hmm. And I think it really comes down to that of thinking that everything is about me, you know, that everything somebody says or every way they look or everything is about me. And it's when you can get past that and go, no, people are in their own world doing their own thing. It's mm -hmm. not about me. 
it's just like, uh, you know, like you can relax your shoulders and <laughs> what's been so, um, interesting about having a kid, right? My son is almost three. Yeah. Um, one, and the, I love the parenting books cause they're just psychology books and right. you could read them even if you didn't have a kid. Um, but one of the like the best lessons or things that stuck with me that has helped me tremendously was, you know, don't personalize anything they do. You can't personalize it. You can't make it about oh. you. And immediately, I, like all kind of clicked when I read that, you know, especially I think around the tantrum stuff, you can imagine like a kid having a tantrum and people without thinking about it, they just start to think, what did I do? Or why is this? You know, it's like, no, literally, this has nothing to do with you. Like, this is what children do because they don't know how to deal with their emotions. And it has less than nothing to do with you. And if you if you do that, then you don't get bothered by it. Like you really the the all the anxiety and the anger. It's beautiful because you can see it so clearly in a toddler, but it yeah. actually is just everybody too. It's just we don't think Such of everybody else point. like that. And so it's yeah. really made me see everybody else like that because I have so embraced it with the kids. I was in a, at an airport working on a, one of those kiosks one day and the lady next to me was looking at me because I was already kind of muttering under my breath because the kiosk wasn't, wasn't responding. And I was like, oh. and this sweet little old lady out of nowhere, she looked at me and she said, hon, she said, you know what I learned is that you can't treat computers like adults. They're three-year-olds. And if you treat them like three-year-olds, life is grand, you know, because they just have little temper tantrums here and there, and they don't want to wake up. They don't want to work. They won't, don't want to do their thing. Um, but if you think they're adults, you'll just keep getting frustrated. And she just volunteered this advice to me, and it has been life-changing to me. <laughs> I love because that. Because I used to be so frustrated mm -hmm. with technology, you know, like, why doesn't it obey me? <laughs> why, oh why doesn't it do what I want? That's such a good that was reframe. so freeing. And now, just don't treat adults like adults either. <laughs> yeah. Oh, as on second thought, we're all three-year-olds <laughs> sometimes, you know. You know, I, uh, my biological father um, would have been described and was described by a lot of people as kind of a rageaholic. He was a lot of fun, too. I mean, he was, you know, very funny and had a great sense of humor and was very loving, but he had this kind of really nasty temper and it was just so volatile. And I grew up around that, and, and I, I took a lot of it on personally. Like, he would get upset about certain things, and I just would be like, oh, I'm bad, you know, and all of that. That's what kids do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I started to see in the generations, I started to watch my sister interact with her kids and so forth and see the whole thing repeated, you know what I mean? Well, somebody said something really wonderful to me, and they said, no matter what happened in your childhood, you get to be your own parent now. Mm-hmm. And you get to reparent yourself and talk to that inner child however you want to talk to that inner child and retool, you know, retrain. And that's really what my life has been about for, for a number of years now. It's yeah. just kind of like, and the beautiful thing is you really start to love yourself a lot more as a result of that as well. Well, that you know? is the work that you have to do in order to yeah. love yourself more. 
Yeah, I feel like we're about to break out into song. Oh. The greatest love of all. <laughs> well, okay, so I, I, I don't uh, directly usually ask people this, but I feel like I'm, I feel like you might already know the answer to this. So I find often that people build businesses that are a direct reflection of the thing that they are working on dealing with. Like whenever I yes. get to know people, I'm like, oh, of course that's your business. <laughs> because well, that's your great, that's your mountain to climb, you know? And mine is certainly like that. Um, is it? Tell me how yours yeah, is like that. Yeah, well, so... I mean, Steve and I probably are together because we had similar feelings about not feeling free and not feeling mm -hmm. like we could just really be ourselves. If you look at our, our first brand, worst of all design, badass brands, we're like, we're putting it all out there in, in the most extreme way, I think, because we want to... We're, we're trying to rebel against what we're supposed to be doing and of and course. working through. I mean, Steve's art brand is sellout. You know, it's like he is just we're both just rebelling against this thing. And it's it's not surprising that that is the brand that we built, is my point. Um, yeah. And we've done a lot of work where I don't feel like it's nearly as um, present as it used to be, but that is through the work of building this business and working through all of these things and telling other people, yeah. be yourself, don't care about what people say. You need, you know, like those are things that I have dealt with so much. <laughs> yeah. And I can completely agree with you on this. I, you know, um, in, in helping people really find the through line on their own story and their own message. Um, I can't tell you the number of times that I've been able to reflect back to people how they really um their, their calling if you will and i don't mean anything metaphysical about that but they're you know kind of like the drive within them is something that was there for them usually when they were five or six years old and and Absolutely. they don't see it but but i can i can show them you know that that's been the case i, I remember this one time this gal who's this really great she's like a she's like a ceo for hire like a part-time ceo for for entrepreneurs who really aren't business managers and so forth and she will come and be their ceo for a period of time to get the processes and stuff like that done and get them organized and all that Ooh. and i was working with her about her story and, and I, I just had this question like which of your parents was disorganized and she goes oh my mother and she started telling the story and she said, wait a minute how did you know to ask me that question <laughs> and i was like <laughs> It's just an intuition yeah. <laughs> that I have about this. But she said that, you know, she she felt like her parents were divorced because her mom was such a mess. And the, fa the family fell apart because her mom was disorganized. And I said, so you're basically still trying to fix that situation. And, you know, she broke down in tears and it was like, like, oh, my God, that's my whole life. Yeah. Right. And it took the kind of drivenness out of her business a little bit. It just gave her a little breathing room around it. Because you can, here's the beautiful thing is you can still do right. the good that you're doing. You know, life has this amazing capacity for us to, you know, be lost and found again, to be, to, to be driven and then sort of discover that, 
you don't have to be driven, but the thing that you were driven about before is now your self-expression and it's your joy, right? Uh So it's, it's a really amazing thing. And that's what happened to me. I did all of this entertainment work, right? And, and I now consider that to be my 40 years in the wilderness because I was never fulfilled in it. Uh-huh. I was always chasing a demon, so to speak, during that time. My real story is that I w- went to a therapist during that time, and he saw that I kept a journal. I've kept a journal since I was in college. And he said, I think your, your question about your sense of purpose, because I told him I think I fell in a river and got carried away by the current, and I don't know how I got here, and I don't know what my purpose is. And... Um, and it was pretty dire. I was I was really actually very depressed and discouraged at that at that time. And um, he said, I think you should go back and read your journals from when you were younger. And you know what happened is I did. I went and read my journals and my very first journal, I was taking notes in a Bible study. We were doing this thing about your calling and your spiritual gifts and so forth. And we went around and each person talked. And and when it came to me, everybody was like, oh, you're going to be a pastor. And I'm like, I'm not going to be a pastor. That is not my calling at all. And somebody said, how about teaching in a seminary? Because you can be involved in shaping other leaders and so forth. And it just lit me up. It was like, oh, that's it. That's what wow. I'm here to do, right? Is, you know, nurture other leaders and I went and talked to my pastor and he said, that's it. You're you're on your way and it's great and everything. Well, what happened? Well, what happened is I also came out at almost the same time as gay. And back in the 70s when I came out, there was no one in, the, in my world who would support me being gay and Christian, right? No one. I searched for anybody that would say I was okay because I internally felt like it was you know, that God was saying, I love you just as you are, but I couldn't find any agreement at all. And I know that what happened, because I got journals talking about it, is I, I got fearful about if I go to a seminary and I, even if I be, become celibate, which I did for a decade, but even, even so, if this isn't going away, and it's going to come out and it's going to get ugly somewhere down the road. And so uh, an opportunity came along with my buddies to to um, go to Epcot Center and perform for six weeks. And that six weeks turned into six years. And I got an offer to become an Imagineer and my career took off, you know, and 20 years later, I'm like, you know, going you know, why am I here and who am I, who am I and what am I doing? And everybody thinks it's so great from the outside. But for me, it was just a wasteland. It was just a desert. And um, so, you know, looking back on that, I go, wow, how did I get here from there? I thought I was, I remembered that I was so excited. What's crazy, P, is I couldn't remember. Well, I was going to a therapist and I could not remember at all anything about having had a sense of vision or purpose for my life. I buried it all, you know, and it was so painful to deal with. I just like shoved it all away. And here, as I'm reading these journals, it's all back and I'm like, now what do I do? <laughs> wow. And I packed my bags and moved across the, the country to go to graduate school here at, in, in D.C. at Georgetown. Uh, and I quickly figured out that academia was not for me. 
And um, that's when the, the ghostwriting thing happened. And, I, you know, I gradually found my way. And what's funny is, what am I doing today? I'm nurturing people to be leaders yeah. in the world, helping them to articulate their message. It's what I, it's really what, I, what was the essence of that sense of calling that I had when I was a kid, you know, when I was a teenager. Um, yeah. Life is amazing that way that if you're willing to look and willing to do the work, um, it, it's, it's almost always right there. You know, like you, we said early in the conversation, we're all like fish in water. We can't really, we, we can't really see ourselves clearly. Yeah. You know, sometimes we have to reflect and really do the work and interact with others to be able to see ourselves clearly. And, you know? and do you find that um, because clearly you're doing this work for you're helping other people yeah. do this work. Um, right. But through the act of helping other people do it, you're able to do it more for yourself for myself right. right and it's taken years but i'm you know i'm finally for the first time um really um coming out from behind the curtain so to speak you know i'm really taking on being you know owning my own voice mm -hmm. having my own um sort of platform writing my own books and and um you know getting my own message out out there and, you know? and that's what I mean. It's, it's like that was the thing that you still needed exactly. to nurture in yourself. And so you ended up building yep. a whole business around <laughs> that concept and helping yeah. other people do it because it's a thing that you needed help with. And sometimes we build a business to help us with the thing that we, I mean, that's what I'm kind of yeah, positing yeah. that that's what we build our businesses for, to help us with the very thing that we need the most help with. <laughs> Gloria Steinem was, uh, did an interview in Ms. Magazine on the, I don't know, 30th, 40th, whatever anniversary of the women's movement, judged by, you know, um, when she founded Ms. Magazine. And um, and in it, she said, the, the interviewer said, do you think that the messaging of the women's movement was was really for the women, themse women themselves, more so than trying to get the rest of the world to empower them. And she said, absolutely. She said, without a doubt, we teach what we most need to learn. Mm. Right. So great. It's exactly yes. what we're talking about. We, we, we give this away to other people and, and, and like take a crumb of it at a time for ourselves and gradually, <laughs> you know, the light dawns. And, and perhaps the reason that that is the process that so many people go through is because that is a form of taking action. It is absolutely the more you help somebody else do the thing you need help with, the, the more you learn about that thing so you can teach it to yourself and so you can do it. Yeah, exactly. The other thing about it that's kind of funny is that people discount what they've learned over a lifetime. You know, they don't, they don't really deeply value um, what come, what seems to now come easy for us when we've done the actions and we've mastered, you know, whatever it is that we've had to master. It's, it's like, it's secondhand for, it's so easy for us now. And then we, we don't realize that other people, it's not easy for other people. And it'll really make a difference for other people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we do need to, once, once you embrace 
that you've got this thing to offer, then you have to really go through another process of really valuing it based on the difference that it makes for others rather than how difficult it is for you. It's uh, so hard to internalize that. And it's also, even if you know it and you charge like that, it can still be, I, I mean, I, I obviously know and embrace that. Right. Better than many, <laughs> I would say, because I'm, <laughs> I'm all about the premium prices. And and yet and still, you know, I still have that feeling when something is really easy um, and yeah. somebody's paying me a lot of money for it. I still have that feeling like, well, yeah. maybe I didn't do this well enough if it was so easy for me. But that's about trusting ourselves. And yeah, yeah. to your point, like remembering that there has been so much leading up to this moment when you were able to do that brilliant work. Yeah. By the way, when I was at Imagineering, I... Um, I systematized a lot for Imagineering that they never, that they'd never done before. Um, I I kind of codified how meetings are done and how how brainstorming is done at Imagineering and so forth. You know, with certainly you you can imagine there's geniuses there, and it's just such it's a joy and it's a little scary at the same time to be in a room with you know, a dozen other women and men that are just, you know, brilliant. Mm. At Imagineering, what I had, what I learned was that there was this banter that if you interrupted it, you were dooming the meeting. The initial banter would turn on a dime if you let it be into the, the creative work. We had old wall and sack reel-to-reel tape recorders recording meetings you know you had to have that thing running from during that banter because you're going to get the first genius idea right in there somewhere and then it would this is what would happen is then it would go on and on we get very serious and look at things and map things out and so forth and at the end of the meeting um if people would feel like oh that's it we're done don't tape. Don't turn that tape recorder no, off. Not till everyone's Do out of the room. Do not. Yeah. Until everybody's out of the room, because what'll happen is it's that old Columbo turnback thing. Somebody will say, or we could just, you know, and right? Throw and that's some it. Brilliant idea. You <laughs> go. That's it. All right. So yeah, it's it's a, that's it's awesome. a, it's amazing because uh, the brain works in these weird relaxed modes. Absolutely. I, you know, how often do you get your most brilliant ideas in the shower or when you're on Mm -hmm. a drive or what, you Mm -hmm. know, most of us don't get our best ideas sitting at our desk working. We get them everywhere else, which is why it's so important to work into your schedule all of this downtime. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's where the good stuff. I have to ask you a Disney question. Yeah. Okay. So we read this uh, somewhere. And have incorporated it into our our process. So I'm curious if this was in your process or not. Uh, Legend has it (laughs) that Disney, (laughs) uh, at Disney, they would would have periods of time that were specifically set up where nobody could say anything like negative. We have now coined this, or we now call this Disney mode so that we can specifically, when Steve and I are having a meeting, we say, okay, Disney mode right now, which means Mm -hmm. nobody gets to say anything um, pragmatic or logical. You know, you get to just say all the dreamy stuff. And then they would have a different meeting where they went through Mm -hmm. all the stuff and actually said, okay, what is actually feasible? Um, And so we have implemented that. So did you guys have that? 
<laughs> yes, it's blue sky is what it's called. Blue, blue sky oh, is okay. the term for that. Now, here's the interesting thing is that um, I came, when I came to Imagineering, there were only 400 Imagineers. When I left, there were 2,000. And at the end, um, I would notice that there there wasn't a, people didn't follow kind of a a pattern as much as they did at the beginning. And what I mean by that is that, that um, you know, when you put a bunch of really brilliant minds together, they don't like rules, generally speaking, right? So you no. say only, <laughs> only, good, only good ideas, and <laughs> basically, I don't know how PC we need to be, but you'll get like, you yeah. know, forget it, we you don't. know, up yours. <laughs> um, so, so as a general rule, though, it really is, and what um, causes it to shift is time pressure. I'll give you an example. We needed to, um, we, we were doing a presentation um, about the characters for the new Disney MGM studio tour. And um, so we, we needed, all they wanted was ideas for the characters um, for essentially their Hollywood Boulevard, which is like Main Street at Disneyland, right? Mm -hmm. But they wanted it like, I think the next day or in two days, they wanted the whole thing done, you know, like that fast. They said, this isn't the final decision. We just need to, to basically prove that it's all doable, right? So we want lots and volume is what we're looking for, right? Mm -hmm. So... We had this room that looked like a ballet studio, all mirrors on all walls. And um, we had, you know, post-its and super post-its, you know, those big full sheet post-its. And we would put those things up everywhere. And our we filled that room completely full of ideas and so forth. And because of the time pressure and because we said it really doesn't matter if anything's feasible or not. Because we took that away, right. like you don't have to critique anything right. because it just doesn't matter. Well, you know, let me tell you, we filled the room and Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg came in the door and they were blown away. And they left going, we have to have a character program. So they did. They they had their Hollywood Boulevard character program, you know, just like Disneyland does and, you know, other parks do. Um, but that... That was a true blue sky project, mm, yeah. Because you know, all that mattered was that we get all the stuff out there and, and wow them with the possibilities. But most meetings that were the initial things, people found it, uh, generally people found it pretty tough to make that split to say we're not editing. You know, it's just natural for you to go, but will that right? Work? Huh? You know, and. Um, Try, try as you may to discipline it. The, the enforcement of rules puts more of a damper on the spirit of the thing than <laughs> just, you know, letting it ride. That just adds the wrong energy yeah. into the space. So generally speaking, we, it's a principle to follow, but you, it's really more about how you set it up so that, you know, you kind of take away the need to do that, you mm -hmm. know. And I tell writers, too, I tell them really there's three phases. You need a brain dump phase. You know, a lot of people think I'm, if I'm going to write a book, it's just a matter of stenoing it out of my head onto paper. That's mm -hmm. not true, mm -hmm. right? 
But it is good to do a brain dump of all your ideas and either do it visually on a wall, you know, or a whiteboard or something. But but yeah, definitely drain drain all of your the ideas that have been floating up there for a while. Do that. Get that out of you. But that's not brainstorming. That's just brain dumping. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now what you want to do is brainstorm. Sit back and look at it and say, what does it remind me of? What does it make me think of? What are the connections? Draw, you know, strings between the connection, between the pieces, move the pieces around a bit. This is all brainstorming. And now there's ways, like I use a lot of prompts when writing, you know, Um, because who wants to stare at a blank page? And I, so now you you start asking yourself some questions to stimulate more and more and, and add mass and volume to it. And notice at no time are you actually needing to edit anything yet, right? You may be moving things around a little bit, and there may be sort of a subtle editing process as you move things to the edge, which don't seem to have any significance. But you don't take anything off the board yet. And then you go back in and you write. You start to turn these into um, whatever form you're going for. Then you start to write. But you've got two other layers, you know, steps before you've started writing. Mm -hmm. And then you, when you're writing, and this is why I write longhand, I don't do writing for the most part on the computer because for some reason my brain is still trained to think of that as editing. Ah. So, and I know a lot of people that write and it's great. I think you write on the computer, right? I write on the computer because my hand, especially because I'm so out of practice, I do write in a journal, so I don't not write, but my hand cannot write as fast as my brain. So ah, okay. that's why yeah. I like to write yeah. on the computer. Well, that's great. So, so for me, first of all, I don't write in full sentences when I'm first doing my writing anyway. Mm, okay. <laughs> I've got this sort You've of, got your own I've got this sort of steno, steno shorthand thing oh, going on nice. for the, for the same reason yeah. that you're talking about and pointing to. And then what I do then after that is that then I move it up into the computer. And, and as soon as I'm doing that, I'm, I'm in editing mode, uh. you know, and by the way, I go back and forth between writing mode and editing mode. It's not a linear thing. Oh, okay. You know, it's a, it's a back and forth because then you'll have a burst like, you know, your shower burst of inspiration right. and I'll just get it all down there. And um, I've, I've rewritten the same thing from scratch over and over again many times, you know, and you find new inspiration flows out of it and then it has to go back through an editing process. In fact, you know, many editing processes. But that's the other thing is just don't be afraid of, um, you know, editing is editing is really just uh, when my stepdad, who was an editor, um, uh, told me about editing, you know, when he really introduced the idea to me, it was like the sky parted, like, oh, my gosh. So it's really okay for me to write my ideas down in, you know, stream of consciousness and gibberish and then go back and he showed me literally on paper with his green pen you go back and you circle this and go move that down here <laughs> right oh, wow. but that was like oh that's so freeing right. because now i can just dump it all out on the page yeah 
like because my brain the the thing that I was being teased about originally was and my teacher I remember my teacher telling me well you know you got too many ideas in your brain and you're 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 trying to say them but then you're backing up and you're confusing us because we don't know really what you're trying to say to us and I still do that to to some extent it's just you know the brain isn't wired as you said you know to to get it out of you fast enough so you got to put it down in whatever form it comes. And you get to go back and reorganize it and sound like a genius. Imagine that. Imagine yeah. that. I think somebody most said of the us best rewriting it. is best writing is rewriting, right? You know. Yeah, I think most people I watch and I and I do this. I am guilty of this too sometimes, especially when you just want to write something and and get it out there. You're trying to have it come out perfectly in eh. the first. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's almost impossible. No, it's, we all know people who seem to be able to you know, speak, but I, I met Les Brown, you know who Les Brown is? No. He's this, he's this comedian, essentially, it became a motivational speaker. You know, he'll, he'll do something and the audience will applaud because he's got this whole thing that just come, seems to flow out of him with energy and enthusiasm. And I talked to him about it and he's like, oh my gosh, you know, that passage that you're talking about has been rewritten 150 times. I've practiced it in front of a mirror a thousand times, right? So right. You, you don't you see the performance, you're not always seeing what's behind the performance, right? I have that same experience and I know you do too. We talk about the things that we talk about so often that we're yep. able to speak about them almost in a speech like form. I could get up and talk right. about my area of expertise for hours <laughs> and it would yeah. you know and it would seem like it was wow off the cuff and that all made sense but no i've said versions of this a bazillion times so that's to your point it's um it's just it's yeah. muscle memory and dancing is the same way dancing is you practice oh, yeah. and you practice and then it's muscle memory and then you know what whatever happens on stage that's what happens you're you're not thinking about it if you have to think about it yeah. you didn't learn it well enough yeah <laughs> right so, so Max, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now with your businesses? You're, you're yeah. launching your... Well, I'm launching this new imprint. Um, yes. Heroes Heard is my brand there. We've got this series that I mentioned that is um, the 30-day breakthrough series. So I'll be publishing about a half a dozen of those this year, um, mine, mine being the first. And my goal is that to put a new one of those out every month. Uh, from the publishing company. But um, the next big thing that I'm doing is I'm actually launching um, a messaging masterclass. I, I'm calling it the magnetic messaging masterclass. I'm guiding people and implement, helping them implement their own message. And I have a um, a framework that really helps people process through, but also um, to discover you know, what their big idea is and what stories are appropriate for, you know, a particular message and so forth. Um, and um, so I'm I'm launching that uh, this spring and I'm doing uh, this same, the five day that I did, the five day training, I'm doing that again um, the end of January um, uh, and I'm doing it about every six weeks. A lot of people told me that, that went through it before told me that it was really inspiring because Writing a book or giving a TED Talk sounds so daunting to most people, right? And what I'm really wanting to do is to help people build platforms that are sustainable 
And so that's, I'm putting all the pieces together now. This five-day training is really my introduction and my marketing to people. That and doing this sort of thing, being out doing podcasts. And from there, I'm leading people who are ready for it into an implementation of, you know, unpacking and, and starting to shape their message, uh, ultimately okay. to write their book. But what I ha- the, the, the challenging piece that I really have to emphasize people is people dive into writing a book too soon for the most part. Um, when you wrote your book, you already had been in business for quite a few years, and you already had a, a, a backlog of, I mean, a tremendous e- amount of experience with dealing with the problems and the challenges and all getting inside of people's heads that you're dealing with. You knew who your audience was and so on. And so many people that come to me don't really know who their audience is. They haven't zeroed in on it. And they and they really can't, as I said earlier, can't really distinguish their own message from a thousand other messages on that sort of general topic, right? They really don't know what their unique angle is on it. And once in a while, somebody come to me and they've got a book title. So they think they've got a unique angle because they've got a catchy book title, Uh you know? And then when you dig a little bit, it's like, yeah, that's, you know, maybe that's a good talk title, but I don't think you've got a book there yet. So, so what I'm really trying to say to people is you're, you need to already know who your audience is and there's work that you can do to discover that. And if you'll engage with your audience as you had, you'll have plenty to write about, right? Mm-hmm. Because most of what you're writing that's really going to move the dial for people is not how to. There are how to books out there and plenty of them. But most of what you're going to write is is more about dealing with the breakdowns and the upsets and the mental frame of mind and all of that stuff, the real in the trenches, you know, what I call on the court kinds of issues. That's what you're going to actually be talking about. And that's best conveyed through your story, Mm. right? Those things aren't really, you, you explain them, nobody gets them. But if you share it in the story, people are like, oh, I so relate, you know, and it's dealing with fear and dealing with lack of confidence and dealing with, you know, um, uh, false beliefs and stuff like that. But specifically, not in generalities right. like I just did. You know, it's getting down in, in, in into the nitty gritty of all of that. And I, I know that's what you did because we've talked about it and I've read your book. So I know that's what you really already did. You know, every time you turn the page in your book, you're, t- you're, you're telling a real story about <laughs> what it's really like in the trenches, you know? <laughs> and it's so much easier when you have those stories. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. So, you know, publishers send me people who, who they know aren't ready to write a book and they, they know I'm going to do this with them. But I, I say, well, we've got to first figure out where you want to wind up. That book is a, that book is a, on-ramp to something. What is that something that you want to be doing with people, right? That's critical. And then who are the people that you want to be connecting with? And, and you know, we, we narrow that and narrow that until we really know who we're writing the book to, right? So I, people come to me and are often like, I'm ready to write, 
And they're really not. And so the initial work that I'm doing with them is to really get them ready to have a platform and ready to build, you know, to write a book. To And uh, some people come to me with a lot of experience and they just need to, you know, move the pieces around and understand it. And that's fine, too. So, gotcha. So it's this, yeah. this master class that's coming up. Well, my my uh, my master class starts in Feb. Actually, it starts in mid February. But the sort of on ramp to it is is uh, fast track to impact, which is my um, how to really make an impact with a book, whether it's business movement, you know, a social movement or a business, but how you really. Um, how a book turns into a platform, right? And and how to really go about that. And that's that five-day program that I'm doing starting in January 26th, and that's what I lay out for people. And I'll, I'll be doing it again at the same address, fasttracktoimpact.com, um, and people can, um, you know, because podcasts, you know, somebody might be listening this six months after you and I recorded it, but that's fine because I'll, I'll still be doing that. And then I'm going to repeat the master class you know, as the next step for people. Oh, great. The, the fast track to impact is free and it's really a, a labor of love to me. Love it. You know. Love it. All right. Yeah. Fast track to impact. I'm going to link to that in the show notes. You like that? Yeah, I like okay, it. Okay, good. Yeah. I love yeah, it. Good. I love it, Matt. So your book will be out in April and we're all excited to see it and yes, to see this brand get launched. And I'll definitely yep. share that too when it comes out. Um, and I'll definitely send people to fast track to impact. You have an amazing way of getting to the heart of people's, uh, stories and, and uncovering what is truly unique about them and what's important about them. And it's the stories that make it unique, right? Like to your point, the how, the how is everywhere. The information is everywhere. It's your story. That's going to make it something that connects with somebody else. Yeah. Um, and it's not easy for most people. It's not a natural thing to do to tell your own story and tell it with impact. With impact, exactly. Thank you, Max. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Oh, I'm just delighted to be with you. You're one of my favorite bi- people that I've come across in the business world. And it's anytime I have a chance to work with you and play with you, I'm, I'm delighted. I'm so glad. I love chatting with you and it's been great catching up and I'm super excited yeah. for your book and I can't wait for it to come out. And I'm going to check out your masterclass um, and your five day. So I'll definitely link to it. Thank um, you so much. Great. To sign up for Max's next free five-day training on how to build a profitable business around a nonfiction book, go to FastTrackToImpact.com. I will link to it in the show notes at PiaSilva.com backslash podcast. Also, if you know other entrepreneurs who struggle to put their business in its place and could benefit from hanging out with us, please share this podcast with them. Hard work can only take you so far. It is how you show up in your business that really makes the difference. And to make sure that you don't miss an episode of Show Your Business Who's Boss, hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast player. Taking inspiration from Max today, I want you to think about your stories from your childhood. What themes do you see from growing up that are now playing out in your business? What unfinished business might you be dealing with as you build your business? I promise you 100% it is there. And if you can identify it, I find that it can actually help you lean into your business more because you understand what brought you to build it in the first place. 
For me, I realized that shaking myself loose from the fear of what other people think of me was a big reason why I built an entire business around standing out and not caring what everyone thinks. And realizing that has allowed me to lean into following my path even more. So try it because that might just be your next step in showing your business who's boss. Show Your Business Who's Boss is produced by Yellow House Media. Production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode is edited by Marty Seafeld. Production assistance by Kristen Runvik. Our theme music is Glass Prisms by Western Runners. 